This is Tire Information Whiskey, 2153 Zulu, wind 060 at 5. Seriously, it's Mike Juarez, this is Archer Radar Contact. Azure's weather information from Minnesota, available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast, connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hello everyone, Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. So happy you're able to join us. On this episode, we'll be discussing flight training, part 141 versus part 61, and what might be the best choice for you. We'll also talk about flight simulators and how they can play into your training plan. And as always, news, information, and events from around the region with some friendly hangar talk along the way. So strap in and let's take off into this episode of the Fly Midwest Podcast. So what's going on, guys? How have you been? I just got, I finally got picked up by my ops group. So I'm officially a beginner flight engineer. Yay! Cool. Like, like officially, as of yesterday, I got the notification. Wow. Because apparently it's, along with the PJs, it, it's uh, pair rescue jumpers. In the Air Force, they're like special forces. The they're the they're the groups of people that go behind enemy lines when air crews crash their airplanes, like in Vietnam, mm. and go and rescue them, and then bring them back to South Vietnam. Wow. Yeah. What, so, what are you What were you talking about? Flight engineers. So apparently, I I this is news to me, but apparently, flight engineers are as prestigious as uh, uh, pair rescue jumpers. I'll give you $10 to go into a base gym and make that argument. <laughs> I will not because I, come with I also, I also think that uh, <laughs> I was being fed a line of bull. You may have been sold a bill of goods. Wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. I'd take that one with a grain of salt. It is a pretty I mean, cool looking job though. But oh, yeah, yeah, sure. nobody knows what it is. So you can make, you can really make what it is. I, hey, this I'm is true. Engineer. Yeah, you could, with a name like flight engineer, you could say whatever you wanted about your position and people would be like, oh yeah, sure. Well, since we brought it up, what explain to us what a flight engineer is going to do then. Or do you not know? I do know. Um, okay. <laughs> That's good. So I, I, could, I could be the smart ass or I could be the legit. The smart ass. You did the smart of, ass. You know, we could take both actually. Yeah, do, the, do both. So the smart-ass part of me says, we flip switches and dial the knobs. We make the uh, the cabin hot, the cabin cold, and everything else in between. But in reality, we're actually the systems expert on the airplane. And what that means is, hey, most of the time when everything's working fine and dandy, we're bored. But when a system like your uh, your pneumatic system or your hydraulic system fails, that's where engineers, who are the systems experts on all the systems on board the airplane are is supposed to be able to remedy that situation, get the airplane down on the ground safely. But in addition to that, we also do a lot of uh, performance data. So what is our speed 2000 feet down the runway on our takeoff roll? Are we, uh, are we doing a, a rolling takeoff or a standing takeoff? You know, things like that. That's a neat job. <clears throat> now the FADEC takes care of that on most aircraft. <sighs> yeah. About that. Our C-130s will never get FADAC. No. No. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask. Is it just the C-130s that have that position still, or is it any other aircraft in the Air Force? So I think, um, so I know for sure the uh, the C-5 Fred, um, C-130 legacy models, so it's the H and earlier, H and E's, which are the flying ones right now, and KC-10s are the... Um, are the three that I know of. I think like all the 747s do, like NAOC, um, 
the Doomsday airplane, sure. all the sep- all the early 747 variants. I think they do have flight engineers, but I'm not 100% certain on that. Yes. Uh, 100 and 200 models. 302. Is it 300? 300. I thought 300 was, uh, was electronic. Mm-mm, I don't think so. Okay. Because the 300 was like the, the interim model. Like they had the 100 and it was like, whoa, this 200, whoa, 300. It's like you guys did the same thing. Now there's cooler technology. What are you doing? And so like a year and a half later, they had the 400 and everybody's like, whoa. And they wow, had the last displays. Yeah. The way right. you describe that sounds like when the new iPhones come out, like, mm-hmm. oh, it's iPhone 6, the iPhone 7. It's like, what'd you change? Oh, the camera's different. Trust me. Yeah. Oh, the, chip, the chips are smaller. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. It means it's cool. It runs cooler. What does that mean? It means it takes up less energy. Okay. What, what, okay. Layman's terms. Your battery's going to last a lot longer. Oh, cool. Thanks. But does it? <laughs> no. No. So let's jump into some news, shall we? I'm sure a lot of people have seen this. It's actually a, a body cam footage of a plane crash in Los Angeles. Now, this guy is having a bad enough day as it is where he ends up losing his engine on takeoff in a Cessna 172 outside of a white man airport. Shortly after takeoff, he loses his engine. He he uh, lands it, force lands it on the road, completely tolls the airplane, but he lands it on the tracks. And fortunately enough, apparently there's a, a, there's a, a, a police station like right there as well. And so, you know, first responders show up, you know, hooray, and, and they're getting him out of the airplane, but then there's a train coming. So this guy's day went from bad to worse. So they're, they're trying to get him out of the airplane, trying to get him out of the airplane, and the body cam looks over, and you see the train just plowing down the tracks. And finally, seconds before the train's going to hit, the guy is extracted from the airplane, and the, and, and the airplane is just completely demolished by this passenger train that, that, that passes by. Kind of a really shocking but good end to the story. You know, it, it could have been a, a lot worse. It's one of those things that really makes you wonder, makes you count your lucky stars. Yeah, that guy needs to buy a lottery ticket. Yeah, nobody wants to lose their engine on takeoff. That's personally one of my fears. I've never had that happen. I've been close. I've had like engine roughness and stuff, but never full engine failure. In a place like Los Angeles, when, you know, everything's very, very congested, any airport that's a lot near a lot of congestion scares me in that respect because of that. Because if your engine fails, you don't have any really anywhere to go. So, I mean, you probably picked the best place that there was, which was, you know, more or less empty train tracks. But unfortunately, trains take a long time to stop and there is no way, you know, that train could have stopped in time. So I'm, I'm just glad that he was able to get out. I mean, the body cam footage, he looked pretty torn up. So I'm just glad that people were there to, you know, pull him out of the wreckage. Well, yeah. And, and that kind of illustrates a really good point is, you know, when we take off, you know, solo or even with passengers, um, I always try to get into the ritual of doing a commit point brief. Okay, so if uh, my engine fails on takeoff, zero to 50 feet, I'm going to land straight ahead. 50 to 500, I'm going to look for a place, you know, um, 30 degrees on either side of the nose. If it's a uh, 500 to 1,000, anywhere forward of the wings. 1,000 feet or above, well, at my home airport, Flying Cloud, I have a, a, a parallel that's usually where I take off. I have a parallel to the south. Um, so the south parallel, I have bluffs that give me a little bit more altitude. So maybe a couple hundred feet extra. Then it goes into a water, goes into a marsh. There's there's a little bit more time that I can buy. So I have a lot more options. Uh, this that kind of goes into a really good practice of actually doing a commit point brief where, hey, look, if my engine fails, hey, I've briefed it. Now it's in the forefront of my mind that I am I'm expecting this engine to quit at any given point, And I have a plan. Being in a congested area, I mean, I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine what went into his mind. The only audio that he had after, you know, you know, clear for takeoff is mayday, 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 and then nothing else, nothing else was heard. Kind of eerie, but it kind of illustrates the point that that we all as pilots need to be in this mindset that we are doing a risky activity. <clears throat> and this is why we practice engine failures and things like that too. Like you know, as an instructor, you know, that's one of the things I'm going to start nailing. And I should, you know, instructors should nail this anyway, is 
all the time, like have your students be prepared for your engine to fail. Like the best way to fly the plane is just expect something to fail because you never know when it's going to. And if you're in that mindset, especially when taking off, hey, like I'm just prepared that this engine's going to fail and it's it'll be really great if it doesn't. But when that time comes, you'll have that muscle memory. Like you'll, especially on takeoff, you'll know to push down the nose, get to VG and look for a place to land, like boom, boom, boom. Instead of having that, like, oh no, what do I do? Because as you know, we don't rise to the occasion as pilots, we we sink to our, our last and highest form of training. So, you know, it's best to even practice this if you're just a, a weekend flyer, you're a weekend warrior, which is fine. Go up with a CFI or go up with yourself and practice engine failures. No, at a safe altitude, but, you know, put yourself in those situations, have those engine failures and pretend to make those calls, uh, look for places to land and try to do it, not actually land, but, you know, put yourself in those situations, mate put yourself in that so you're prepared when it actually happens. So in more regional news, a pilot in Forest Lake, Minnesota, crashed on New Year's Day, uh, Saturday afternoon. He had reported to officials that his plane engines quit. His plane engine quit without warning. Uh, the aircraft, he was able to steer it into a swampy area adjacent to I-35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota, and was able to land it on a pond. Authorities had found the aircraft in an elevated tail up position, kind of nosed into that swampy area. Um, he wasn't immediately adjacent to the aircraft when they got there, but they were able to locate him um, and not note any injuries. And that was a wicked cold day. Certainly a concern for what he may have been experiencing when he was out there as far as temperatures, things like that. And we just talked about that in our last episode about um, winter flying and, and being prepared for situations like that. So Hopefully he is all right. So it looks like there were two pilots from Ohio that were reportedly killed when a Kalita's charter Beechcraft Baron crashed outside of St. Louis. The, uh, the pilot was, uh, was identified as George King of Ohio, and then Amanda Youngblood, 35, from Huber Heights, Ohio. Uh, they were leaving St. Louis en route to Centennial Airport, uh, just south of Denver. Now, the airplane did crash. Uh, into a wooded area right around seven seven o'clock in the evening. There was no post crash fire, so there's a lot of good evidence that's that's there that's pretty well preserved. ADSB data from FlightAware and and uh, uh, ADSB observing sites shows that the plane was probably trying to make a 180 getting back to the airport. You know that's obviously speculation, but obviously the FAA, NTSB, they're both looking into this accident. Uh, they're doing, you know, the usual toxicology reports. They're they're doing reconstruction. Um, the FAA and NTSB, the investigative bodies, are actually really good at this sort of thing. Um, they can figure out a lot of a lot of details that are very minute for somebody that's not trained in this sort of venture. Yeah, sad deal. Um, two experienced pilots. Um, just a sad deal. As of today, in Duluth, Minnesota, our very own Cirrus aircraft revealed their 2022 G6 SR series. So this is their sixth generation of their popular SR-20 and SR-22 aircraft, having sold at least 8,000 since their inception. So some fun things about this new aircraft. It's nine knots faster, reportedly, with all their new streamlining and uh, different things that they've done to really refine this aircraft. They report that it's the fastest to date. It has these sleeker wing and tail surfaces. They've completely redesigned their wheel pants and they have seamless transitions on their ice panels. So this all helps reduce drag, makes this a really fast aircraft. There you go. So on to 5G. So 5G has been a, one of those hot topic items that have been coming down the pike for a couple of years now. And basically it's the, it's the next generation of cellular connectivity. And there's a lot of benefits to it, you know, faster processing, you can have, you know, quicker connectivity, wider bandwidth, things like that. There's also some downsides to it. One of the biggest downsides is how it affects aircraft and aircraft instrumentation. You know, I can remember from way back when I started learning how to fly, oh, don't use cell phones on board the airplane because it could, it could uh, mess with the navigational system of the airplane. Well, people forget their cell phones all the time and they forget to put in airplane mode and somehow magically the airplane that they're on, the airliner, 
lands at their destination airport without any issues. So that's not to say that there is there is or is not any sort of interference with your cell phones. Now 5G kind of amplifies that. There, there's a risk that your 5G um, cell service will actually start affecting um, instrument landing systems on board, you know, major, major um, airports. You know, look at uh, St. Louis, you look at Chicago, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, anywhere that they have a Cat 2, Cat 3 approach where your minimums are below 200 feet, which is your Cat 1 ILS minimum. Cat 2 is lower than 200, but not less than 100 feet. And that's derived either by barometric, so you fly to an altitude of uh, you know 680, which is maybe 200 feet above the ground, or it's done through a radio altimeter, which is basically you have a um, a radio sensor throwing beams to the ground, and the airplane's picking up those beams as it's flying over, and basically that's that's receiving a lot of that that uh, the ground information to let to let the pilots know, hey, look, we're we're 100 feet above the ground, we're 50 feet above the ground. Well, that 5G from what they're saying is having some sort of interference with that. And so larger airports are starting to get notamed, you know, cat two, cat three approaches out of service due to 5G network. Now, the interesting thing of it is um, St. Louis among 50 other airports, and this actually comes from Fox two, there will start to have some buffer zones, which basically will, at least for in the near future, eliminate the 5G interference um, I think Flying Magazine stated it was going to be about a six-month moratorium around airports so that it doesn't interfe- interfere with the with the navigation equipment until we can find a remedy for it. But the reality is, is there's still an issue that that I think is pretty well documented. But there's also a uh, there is still some give and take between the cell phone providers and an aviation safety analyst. Basically, you want to be able to have all the inf- all the tools in your toolbox. To make a safe landing if you're in a zero zero um, zero visibility zero ceiling environment but apparently it's a big enough issue that this is that the cell phone providers are starting to make are starting to budge on their uh on their stance that hey okay we see that there might be an issue we'll go ahead and uh turn off the 5g around the airports at least for six months yeah they've agreed to a voluntary delay as they look at some of these proposed mitigations and things it seems that there's some documented issues with the 5g obviously and something that Certainly worth keeping an eye on. I think good for those cell phone companies for agreeing to that voluntary delay to try to figure this out gives that additional time and space to reduce those disruptions. I know before they weren't willing to do that. They were trying to roll this out as quickly as possible because, I mean, you guys know we've been hearing about this for forever. You know, it started overseas and, you know, Japan, France has it now and all these other big countries with, you know, larger aviation presences. And we haven't heard a whole lot about it, but, you know, the aviation community has always been kind of nervous about it and everybody else thinks we're wearing tinfoil hats. So I think it's, it's good that, you know, there has been information um, from the FAA themselves saying, Hey, you know, this is an issue. We're looking at it. We're not sure exactly how it's going to affect us. And I do like how they mention um, other, other countries and saying, hey, well, Japan does this and France is doing this. Why aren't they having any issues? And actually the FAA does go into some of the um, things that uh, France has been doing. Um, For instance, they have their antennas pointed downwards. It's like a law. They have to have them pointed downwards um, so it doesn't interfere as much. And different power, uh, and then they have their own buffer zones. The FAA is actually taking what France is doing more and doing something similar to that with the buffer zones. So because... You know, with the radio, um, the radio altimeters is very close. Uh, it's called the the C band, the Charlie band. Um, that's the spectrum that it uses, and 5G uses this too. And so they do. There is real danger of this interfering. And with, you know, when you're doing a Cat two or Cat three approach, like if you've ever seen those online or you've ever flown on yourself, you know that it's no laughing matter. You're really close to the ground, and you might not be able to see until a hundred feet, which is not a yeah. lot. So. And even the zero zero landings that you you know some aircraft can do now with A three fifty I think can do it by itself. Um, like that's not something that will be possible if it can't get the accurate radio signals. You know there will be there there could be crashes there could be you know scares go arounds things are just unnecessary um, because of this interference. So I'm glad that the FAA and the cell phone companies <laughs> these providers have been able to work something out at least for the the near future. So we've got a few events to tell you about this go around. 
The Experimental Aircraft Association Chapter 444 will be hosting a ski plane fly-in and chili feed on January 29th, 2022. That'll go from 11 a.m. until the food is gone. That is at the Waupaca Airport in Wisconsin. That is Kilo Papa Charlie Zulu. For those of you keeping track of airport codes at home. On the 19th of February, 2022, at Western Michigan University College of Aviation, there is a Women's Aviation Career Symposium. So if you're a woman in your high school, junior, and or beyond, go meet with industry professionals. Go see what aviation careers are out there and interact with local women that are in the aviation industry and pursue aviation. It is $10 to attend, and if you register before January 22nd, you can get a free t-shirt. So it is from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. again on the 19th of February, and in case there's inclement weather, it can, will be changed to February 26th. There will be scholarships available. Um, applications are due on the 22nd of January. And on that note, we plan on having a uh, women's aviator roundtable of our own in a couple of weeks. In this week in aviation history... We want to go back all the way to 1943, January 9th. The, uh, the Lockheed Constellation made its first flight with the uh, United States Air Force. It was really a leap in, in uh, engineering, in aviation engineering. Basically, it was a pressurized cabin. Uh, you could have a 8,000-foot level cabin when you're flying at altitudes of 35,000 feet, so where we're flying today. This is back in 1943. So that's a, that's a pretty cool historical event, um, especially when we're getting into... The, the golden age of aviation. In addition to that, I wanted to bring everybody's attention to the buff, B-52. January 11th, 1962, we have a uh, land speed record. B-52 took off from Kadena. That's in Japan. Yeah, it was, it was Japan. It was Kadena. It was <laughs> Kadena Air Force Base um, in Okinawa. Uh, the, the operation was actually called Persian Rug, and it was an unrefueled flight. Lasted 21 hours, 52 minutes. And covered 12,532 miles for metric people there. It's a 20,168.87 kilometers with an average speed of 604 miles an hour or 972 kilometers per hour. Our friends in Canada are really going to appreciate that metrics scale that you added in there for them. So thanks for that. I mean, we practically are South Canada. So. <laughs> and now it's that time. Let's hop into our CFI Minute. Well, hello, aviators and aviatrices. Welcome to the CFI Minute. Uh, the age-old debate, which one is better? Part 61 or Part 141 flight schools? Although both sides have decent points on their debate, there is a lot of misinformation that goes around about flight schools and a lot of stereotypes that may or may not reflect actual reality. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what really constitutes as a Part 61 and a Part 141 flight school, how the flight training looks, what the differences are, and then a little bit later I'm going to be talking about flight simulators. So part 61, this is the program that is the baseline. The FAA outlines it in part 61 of the FARS, and it is the program used by independent CFIs, small flight schools, and even medium to large flight schools use this as an opportunity for training. Even really large schools like ATP, for instance, use part 61 exclusively. No matter which kind of school, if you go by part 61, you will have to follow the regulations outlined in CFR 49 part 61. You'll find this in your FAR aim. So each rating you'll find has requirements outlined in this part, and CFIs must adhere to these during training. However, how they do that is of their own prerogative. Some use a syllabus from Jeppesen or they choose to make their own. The biggest thing is that the CFI or the flight school has full free reign of how they want to do their training. So an advantage of this is definitely to have a syllabus tailored to the way you learn, the way you want to do your training. It can even be helpful if you're in an area with weird weather where things need to be structured a little differently. This ends up being a lot more flexible than something more structured. A disadvantage though, your flight training can really easily be sabotaged by a very poor CFI and often costs more than desired because of bad time management, uh, poor training, low standards, or what have you. Another possible issue could be scheduling. Say if you attend a very small school and they only have one or two instructors and maybe one airplane, this could cause a delay in training if one of the two becomes unavailable. Another thing is your experience can vary very widely. You know, some CFIs are very competent, very good at their job, and very passionate about what they do. However, not all CFIs care that much. Some are more lax and some just want to see you through the check ride and want a paycheck. So consistency can be hit or miss. 
A major benefit that a lot of people report with Part 61 is cost. Because all that you technically need is the minimum hours, ground training can be done at home. You can do a ground school such as M0A, Kings, or Sporties. This is a way lower cost, a couple hundred dollars than in person, which can be thousands. Training can also be maximized time-wise, so you can do a lot of things at once, which may not be something that you could do at a bigger school. You can see this in some people who get their private and instrument at the same time, or who decide to do their commercial from the right seat so they can immediately do their CFI. Unfortunately, a downside to part 61 is that the hour requirements are the hour requirements. There is no variation in between this. So you do have to do time building for instrument and commercial, and you have to have the full 40 hours for your private pilot. This can actually sometimes make the cost greater than part 141. So what is part 141? The only true difference between a part 61 and a part 141 school is the requirements from the FAA. A small school can still have a Part 141 program. Essentially, what happens is that a school must apply. They have a pre-application and a formal application. They have their training course outline, also known as a TCO, and syllabus heavily scrutinized by the FAA, and this can be a lot of back and forth with paperwork, and they must eventually be inspected and demonstrate their ability to perform this training outlined in their TCO and syllabus. If they pass, the school is issued an air agency certificate and different letters of authorization, which outline operational requirements, conditions, and limitations. FAA standards still apply. Students need to be tested with the ACS or PTS, depending on which rating they're going for. But since their standards are rigidly upheld and they must follow directly in line with what the FAA wants, they do get special privileges. So this includes few hours for most ratings. For instance, 35 hours is only required for a private pilot instead of 40. There's no time building requirement for instrument and you only need 200 hours instead of 250 for your commercial rating. These flight schools can have very specialized custom programs and these can take all kinds of forms. For instance, I, my flight school actually combined commercial single and multi-engine. They ended up combining the two so that you could have more multi-engine hours and do the cross countries in that instead of the single engine. I still did both check rides, but the way that it was formatted was a little bit different. If the flight school is associated with an accredited university, such as Liberty, UND, or Kansas State, their students can actually be eligible for a restricted ATP, which, depending on the degree, can have an hour requirement of 1,000 hours instead of 1,500. These schools may also be associated with an airline cadet program, which may interest a lot of students, and, if desired, a chief pilot may get certified to perform check rides in-house. Like a Part 61 school, Part 141 schools are not immune to things like staffing or aircraft scheduling issues. Some large schools might have progressive maintenance schedules, for instance. That might mean planes go down more frequently, so the, their availability is less. Also, schools with fast-paced training might have a large instructor turnover rate, which may make the student experience less desired. An influx of students or too few aircraft or instructors may mean that schedules for training might be tight and unforgiving. If you're like me and you need a schedule, you like to have structure in your training and prefer detailed upfront ex expectations, and you're willing to work within a set syllabus, 141 might be the choice for you. On the flip side, a large training environment with rigid structure may not be for everybody. Oftentimes, 141 schools are fast-paced, they're more expensive than their 61 pound reports, and they're more rigorous. Stage checks at certain points are required, and lessons may not always be able to be repeated or shifted around, and sometimes unsatisfactory performance could be grounds for removal as a student. Now, this can happen with Part 61 schools as well, such as ATP, but for the most part, I'm talking about smaller Part 61 schools. But here's the thing. Regardless of the type of school you attend, what matters most is being prepared, studying hard, and having a CFI who really cares about your education and training. The only difference between the two types of schools is how they're formatted. If you haven't started flight training and you're wondering which one might be for you, I encourage you to go to schools in your area. Scout them out. See if you click with a CFI or particularly like how a school is set up. There are advantages and disadvantages to both types. Find one that works for you and good luck on your training. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about flight simulators. You know, a very hot topic right now is can I use my Microsoft Flight Simulator at home with my yoke in the throttle quadrant for flight training? Unfortunately, the answer is no. Although they are very helpful, the FAA has very stringent requirements for a simulator to count for log time. Although many sims look very realistic these days, they are not to be substituted for real training. If you rely too heavily on a flight sim to practice training, especially if in your initial training, 
it can cause you to develop bad habits, such as an over-reliance on instruments. If you want to use a flight simulator on your computer, please do. Have fun with it. They're really fun, and I know a lot of pilots who really benefited from these. A couple of instances of this is creating flight plans with the avionics and using VATSIM or Pilot Edge to help with communications. We'll talk more on that later. So what would be constituted as an FAA-approved simulator for log time? So there's two main types. There's a flight training device and flight simulators. Now the difference is the flight training devices are used mainly for primary and secondary training, whereas FAA-approved flight simulators are the full-motion ones that you see for type ratings and ATP. So let's start at the lowest. Basically, there are two types of flight training devices. Those are the BATD and AATD. The BATD, or Basic Aviation Training Device, is the lowest level and is the most basic, as the name suggests. This can be used for instrument currency, but it's not intended for visual maneuvers. This cannot be used for circular land maneuvers, circling approaches, or unusual attitudes. Basically, just instrument stuff. It can count for 2.5 hours for a private pilot and only 10 hours for instrument. An advanced aviation training device, on the other hand, is more advanced and has higher standards for accuracy. It can be used for currency, just like the BATD, but you can log 2.5 hours for a private pilot, 20 for instrument, 50 for commercial, and 25 for your ATP. It can move, but it's not considered a full motion. There are other levels within the AATD category for specialized training, including avionics only, so they don't actually have flight controls, it's just for programming. This is just a basic outline. There is more detail, but you can go onto the FAA website and read about it if you're really curious. There is an advisory circular out there. So I hope this clears up a little bit about flight simulators and you learned something just like I did today. Thank you for listening to the CFI Minute. I sure had fun talking about all this stuff. Now, back to the discussion, we will be talking about our flight training experiences and our opinions on simulator use during training. Thanks again, Maddie, for the CFI Minute. I think that's a good transition into this week's topic as we talk about our own flight training experiences. So I was part 61. So which part did you guys do? 141. I did a mixture. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually, my initial certificate was actually kind of interesting. I was, I was actually coming back from Afghanistan. I was scheduled to come back from Afghanistan. I, I bought a, um, a ground school curriculum and I was starting college for, for something completely different. And it was around that time where the VA did not pay for your private pilot certificate. So I wanted to morph it as much as I possibly could. So I ended up doing the ground school and doing the check ride as part 61, but I did the training as 141. Sure. And then took a break from training. Then I went to uh, get my instrument rating. I did that 100% part 141. And my single commercial was done part 61, mostly because I was an airplane owner. I went ahead and I did a lot of flying. I, I worked with an organization called Pilots and Paws. I bobbing around, you know, giving people, you know, flying experiences um, with, with experience, you know, the times, the distances, all that sort of stuff. I basically far exceeded anything I needed for the, uh, for the commercial certificate and the, uh, the school that I was attending, their price on a commercial certificate was well over $40,000. And wow. so I, I basically, I invested $6,000 to do the training, to do the check ride, to do everything that I needed to do. And so therefore I was able to, uh, to ob- obtain a, a commercial single part 61 pretty successfully. And for multi-engine, it's uh, it's 141. A little bit of mixture of, of everything. Yeah. For mine, as far as when I first started, I looked at the different options that were available and how much financially each of those were going to cost. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, depending on which direction you go, sometimes those flight schools can be fairly expensive. And from the way I looked at it, it was going to be a little bit more of a time commitment as far as trying to get stuff done quickly to make that worth my while. So I wasn't you know, essentially sometimes replicating a lesson because it had so much time had passed. Um, I was working full time. So the plan for me to do part 61 was in part to how I was going to accomplish that. And I looked at the aircraft I could use too. Are you going to rent? Are you going to be part of a club? I mean, I didn't own at that time. And I found a club at our airport that, that fit for me as far as a good community. I knew people that were in the club already and they had five aircraft at their disposal. So I learned in a 172 with that club and I found a great CFI that I still use to this day for everything. And she's actually a partner in my aircraft. So it's one of those great aviation kind of adventures that I've had 
where she's been along the whole ride. Yeah. So for me, it was, it was a matter of doing that math and figuring out financially, which option made the most sense for me. So that's why I went the part 61. I got a great instructor out of the deal and I've continued to, you know, do all of my ratings with her. You know, you brought up a very good point, which is the the cost aspect, and and the the crux of this episode actually comes from a uh, from a listener who asked our opinions on on this, and and we'll get into the more of the simulation aspect too. Really, what it boils down to is is it's not a cheap hobby, especially if it's something you want to pursue professionally. Um, part sixty one does have its benefits, just as part one forty one does. If you are a self study person. Um, that you, you have some exposure to flying, you have, you don't necessarily need that structure. Maybe part 61 is for you, but if you need that structure, you need that, that, uh, one-on-one time before and after a flight, the, the ground school, the, everything that's, that's encompassed in a 141 package, part 61, you can kind of piecemeal it together to what you need to do. You're going to cover all the same information, but if you are, and this, this kind of goes into, um, how you save money. And we can talk about that here um, after Maddie's done, but there is some cost benefit analysis that, that can be done to kind of mitigate some of those costs. And we'll, we'll get into that after, after Maddie. You're part 141, right, Maddie? Yep. I did part 141 with all, but one rating. So I did, um, so I did it all my ratings with Liberty. Um, So through Liberty university, I did their affiliate program and so I'm online, I'm an online college student and I fly at a flight affiliate. So a flight school that's partnered with Liberty University. Um, this actually worked out really well for me. I was able to do flight training in not only here in Minnesota, but actually down in Florida as well. Um, so I was able to kind of like bounce and get the, the best weather to do a lot of my flight training. I did do part 61 for my CFI though. And that was very difficult. I think for me as a person, as you were saying, Trevor, you know, if you need that structure, 141 is probably the way to go. I'm definitely one of those people. So um, part 61, it actually took me a, a, about a year to finish my CFI. So, and it, it took me just a couple of months to do my double I. So obviously I just need a little bit of that structure personally. And that's not a bad thing. You know, some people, you know, rag on 141 because, you know, they're like, they're just, you know, milking you and, you know, you can do so much more on your own, which could be true. But for somebody like me, especially who needs that, that grind, it needs the maybe extra help even, but you know, 141 does offer a lot of those things. And it offers a lot of checks. If you, you know, are one of those people who isn't super confident per se, like you want to make sure that what you're doing is like 100% correct. And that, um, you don't want just like, to be sent off to the wind, 141 is one of those things. You have those stage checks and progress checks that kind of evaluate you as you go to see how you're doing with different instructors. So you get different points of view um, where you may not get that in 61, depending on the school that you go to. You know, you brought up a very good point. It kind of brings me back to uh, a memory of mine when I was going through my private. I was actually while I was going through the actual flight training program, it was 141 and I was going through my second stage check. So I was doing a cross country and I had the, the worst mindset you could possibly imagine. It's like, okay, I know, I know the instructor is going to devi- you know, deviate me. I'm going to say, okay, we're going to divert somewhere else. And I picked the worst day to doing it because ceilings were 3,500 feet and we were playing a, you know, a 45 minute flight to the West to, um, Wilmer. And by the time we, and I was flying out of Crystal Airport at the time, and I got to probably Lake Minnetonka and all of a sudden I froze. Like I'm seeing these clouds and I I see the check pilot next to me sitting there wondering, what am I going to do? And I froze. He's like, what are these white fluffy things that we're flying through? (laughs) And And I think my, I think my response was, I could still see the ground. Oh, that has happened to me. Well, you know, they do say that the flying, you know, any altitude, you see a lot more clouds that look like bunnies and stuff from mm-hmm. up high than down on the ground. <laughs> right. So needless to say, I, I failed that stage check, but you're right. It, it does give check and balance because it does kind of give you that exposure and that kind of double check to make sure that you're, that you're learning your craft, that you're honing your craft safely. Because the last thing you want to do is if you're a private pilot, yes, you get some, you get what, three or four hours of, of instrument rate of instrument time. Three hours is required. Yeah. Three hours required. You are kind of 
limited in your instrument knowledge that if you get into IMC, you have, what is it, 176 seconds to, to live or something to that effect? It's not long. Right. Less than three minutes. Yeah. I encourage all instructors to do more than just flying, having your student fly under the hood. And if you're a student, ask if you can go try an instrument approach, if you can do maneuvers under the hood. Because as a private pilot, you don't get much exposure to IMC. And especially if you can get into IMC, that's a really good experience too, because I know for me personally, when I was an instrument pilot or a, a learning instrument pilot, it was a really huge shock to go into IMC for the first time. Cause it's like, oh, this isn't how it was like under the foggles right, at all. Right. You know, you're, you're used to being able to kind of see, have a periphery, you know, you have those visual cues, but as soon as you're in the clouds, you have no safety net. You're, those instruments are all you have. And it's the only time really in private pilot where you have to focus on your instruments. And because it's a different mindset, I think it's, you know, good if, especially even if you're just a VFR pilot, you're already rated um, and you haven't done your instrument rating before. See if you can go up with an instrument rated pilot and go fly in the clouds to see what that's like, because it can be terrifying, but it's really good to know what it can be like. So you have that mindset, just like you do with the engine failure. If you know what you're prepared for and you practice for it, you'll be able to perform when it happens. So there are a lot of accidents. In fact, I think one of the number one accidents, it results from flying inadvertent flight into IMC. Know what you're getting into before you get into it. Cause it happens, especially at night and, you know, poor visibility days, you know, you can get into trouble fast. And if you don't have the right tools in your toolbox, you can be in serious trouble. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Well, not funny that you bring up the, the, the toolbox analogy, and how quickly weather can change. I remember one day I was flying out of uh, Anoka and I was going back to my home airport of Flying Cloud in my, my Cessna 150. And I was trying to beat some weather, you know, aeronautical decision-making 101, right? Uh-oh. Um, yep. I, I was doing a downwind departure from, from Blaine. Blaine was VFR, you know, Anoka County uh, 4243 uniform frequency change to, to uh, Crystal. Frequency change approved, go up to Crystal. Yeah, Crystal Airport is now reporting IFR state your intentions. Those three words is will make your hand will make your hair stand on the back of your neck. I think anyone who's flown between those two airports knows that's <laughs> that's a very short span. Yes. Mm-hmm. For those not familiar with the area, that's that's maybe a 10-minute flight. Maybe. From Anoka to Crystal? Yeah, yeah. Once you're it's five minutes. You can see yeah. not even you can see the airport from the other airport right once you're off i mean like like you said trevor i mean as soon as you're off they they pass you right off to crystal yeah well when i was when i was talking to crystal when they when they asked me to state my attention i go i'm going to go back to um anoka i look outside my window and all of a sudden i see nothing but white it was it was inadvertent uh penetration to imc yeah and i go i'm going back to anoka do my frequency change uh noka tower 4243 uniform uh downwind i still on downwind i go uh inbound to land and they gave me clearance to land and ended up getting a ride home that day but that was my first real exposure in a non-instrument rated airplane survived it because i i I had options and that's the big thing when when you're when you're when you're getting into the uh the psychology of flight when you're getting into you know uh human factors get home itis will kill you and you need to have options experience. It is experience. It's something, I think that's something actually going to go back to the 141-61. I think a lot of people have issue with 141 because they don't think you get as much experience out of it as you do 61 because 61, you have more of a freedom, especially as an instructor to kind of make the experience for your student, however you see fit. Because 61 is one of those special things where you can totally tailor your are your students entire rating you can do it all yourself and however you know they learn best however you want to detail it to the weather whatever you want to do you can do that whereas with 141 you're kind of more limited as far as um you know you have to do this lesson this day or whatever because with the tco you know with the faa the training course outline you have to kind of stick to it in um, a certain fashion. So although this might be the case, I think you can still get a perfectly decent experience from a Warren 41 school as I certainly have. I've also gotten the other end of the stick where it's, you know, I have an instructor that just wants 
you know, training hours and they just want flight hours. So, you know, they're having me fly, but I'm not learning a whole lot. Thankfully, this wasn't my entire experience, but I did experience it every once in a while in 141. So just a thing to look out for when you're looking, if you're looking for a school to go to, find one that really emphasizes your education, not just, yep, we have, you can get to the airlines in, you know, five seconds, which, you know, cool, great, but you're not, you may not get a good instructional experience, especially for, you know, the first couple ratings. It's absolutely imperative that you have a good solid foundation for your flight experience. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of speaks back to the reason why I went the route that I did too. I wasn't looking to go to the airlines. This was just for my own, you know, hobby, my own pleasure. So the 61 route was perfect for me at that end. I had done some college stuff on my own as far as online learning, things like that. So that pace for me worked for me. doesn't work for everybody. That more structured 141 plan might be better for other people, like like you had said, Maddie. But for me, it was all about just pacing myself. I picked up some references as far as uh, I used the sporties courses um, to back up the things that we talk about in my lessons with my instructor. So we typically still have that before and after flight briefing, debriefing, and ground school portions. It just wasn't necessarily, I, we had to follow a certain structure. So if there's something that was more timely for us to cover at a different time based on time of the year or things going on or the, w- the weather that we have, uh, we were able to do that and have that flexibility. I think that's great, especially with a really talented CFI. You could get a fantastic education out of a 61 environment for sure. I think that kind of like what you had said too, Maddie, sometimes when you do have the 141, you on occasion will get those pilots that are that are just trying to do that hour building. Mm-hmm. And not that you can't have that with 61, but I'd say of the 61 instructors that I know, um, a majority of them are, are more about just the teaching and not necessarily the looking for a track to an airlines. Right. Yeah. It's definitely more of a common at, common thing to see in 141s because of how 141s usually are with that advanced training. Um, you do get a lot of cycle through. So uh, unfortunately that does often develop those CFIs who may not really just want to teach. They just kind of want to get to the airlines and are using that as a stepping stone. And that's honestly very unfortunate. So if either of you could do it over again, is there anything you would do differently or? Honestly, because it's part of my degree, it's literally part of my degree. I have aviation professional pilot. That is my degree. I'm getting the restricted ATP and everything out of it, which is, you know, pretty great. Um, I think I would do it the same way. Although when I started aviation, I knew nothing. Zilch. So unfortunately, I cost myself way more money than I should have just because I didn't know much. For whatever reason, I didn't pick up on stuff very quickly and I didn't have anything going into it. So definitely if I were to do this again, I think I would do 141 because it definitely does work with my learning style, but I would definitely read and do a lot of things differently within that to make it so it would have been cheaper for me. If I were to do it over again, um... I would do the exact same things, but I probably would have changed my timeline. I started flying when I was 15 years old. Literally, my first flight was the Saturday before 9-11. Wow. Yeah. And my and, and it's the worst thing you can possibly do financially when you're trying to learn how to fly. Start, stop, start, stop, start, yep. stop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That was me, the epitome of me. It took me 10 years. Wow. To finally get my private when I when I finally hunkered down and I I mean when all said and done from zero day zero of of the one forty one course to graduation was I think I got in 30, 38 hours thirty six hours something like that um, wow. which for for part sixty one you have to have a minimum of forty hours mm-hmm. for a one forty one school you can have it reduced to thirty five hours um, pending X Y Z whatever. I, I think I would have um, reallocated money. Granted, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. If I would have done what I did previously in a more condensed time, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at today. Maybe I'd be at the airlines. Maybe I'd be flying with the military. Maybe I would be a bum on the street. I don't know. <laughs> would I do it over again? Yes. I'm in the same boat. Again, just for me, the timing of where I was at, the research that I had done. Again, fortunately, knowing the quality of instruction that I got with the instructor that I have, I do the same thing. Um, 
Same thing as you, Trevor, though. I probably look at the timeline a little bit more. Um, mine wasn't 10 years, but there's something to be said about when you when you do take that pause and you're, you're essentially having to redo lessons because that information has been lost from your last lesson because there's been such a lapse. But yeah, for me, I, I would do the same thing. Doing the self-paced study, picking up some of those programs like Sporties. Um, I did a little bit of, I, I did some of the M0A ground school stuff as well for um, one of my ratings. So to have that augment what I'm doing with my instructor as well, and as long as they're on the same page um, is beneficial. And typically that's what we discussed during our lessons. So, all right, what did you, what did you cover in your stuff at home? All right, let's talk about it. And, you know, if there's something she didn't agree with, she'd say, okay, yeah, I don't necessarily you know, subscribe to that necessary, that process necessarily, but, you know, maybe you could look at it like this and certain things would click differently between her instruction and that. So overall for me, I, I don't think I'd change it other than timeline. All right. So let's talk about flight simulators and how those can fit into training plans. So I think what we'll do is each of us will chat a little bit about how we utilize flight simulators during our training process. So for me, um, uh, my uncle down in Arizona had a flight simulator way back in the day as the very, one of the first flight simulators back in the 90s. And uh, kind of got really interested in, in that aspect way back in the day and kind of got away from it until I really started getting into pilot training. The private pilot aspect, I really didn't use it a whole lot, but really when I started hammering out my instrument, um, especially flying in, in G1000 aircraft, which I did most of my primary training and airplane ownership in steam gauge airplanes. The Garmin G1000 was, was a, a fast-paced evolution for me. I really didn't understand the whole buttonology, the logic behind it, all that sort of stuff. So I ended up buying and installing Flight Simulator 10 and buying a couple add-on aircraft. So I have a DA-42, which is what the flight school is using and a Cessna 172 with a Garmin G1000. Now, I think it's good to preface that Flight Simulator 10 obviously is not, you can't use that for approved flight training unless you have like Redbird right. which runs it. And you have to have a letter of authorization from the FAA stating that this is an authorized piece of equipment to do your approaches and whatever in there. So at home, you can't really use it. But I was able to really learn the buttonology, really learn the uh, the intricacies of loading a flight plan, you know, the direct enter, enter, you know, technique for loading a flight plan. It really helped me advance my my knowledge on a on a digital platform versus an analog history that I have. So in that respect, it was really important for me to, to really hone my skills in that respect and then apply it into the airplane because that, that learning curve is so huge. That ended up saving a lot of time and a lot of money at the forefront of, of, of a lot of my training. So that's really how I used it. What do you guys, what did you guys use for it? Mine was a pretty similar experience where um, I actually took a class in middle school that had um, like a module on flight simulator. And every, every class period, you start with that approach in a mixed field in Chicago, in Chicago, and I'd crash that thing nine times out of 10, just not understanding <laughs> the dynamics of how to fly an aircraft. So it was still cool. I mean, what, at that age, you just get the plane in the area and you fly around. Who cares about taking off or landing? That stuff's not important. Uh, part of what sparked my interest in aviation, certainly. But for me, I don't think it's practical to use it during the primary training phase because you're not really getting that same seat of the pants feel that you would in an aircraft. You're not necessarily having that full scope of vision to do ground reference maneuvers, things like that. So sure, it could be fun to play around with and practice a little bit like the buttonology, like you say, but I don't think that in that stage is probably a practical application. Now for me, my instrument rating is where I used my version of Microsoft Flight Simulator a bit more, where I would do the same thing you had did, Trevor. I downloaded the version of the aircraft I was flying for my training, which is a Piper Warrior, and the same version of the GPS. Simpler buttonology, obviously, than the G1000, but at that point in my flight training, I had a steam gauge with no GPS when I did my primary. So to add that GPS component when I started doing my instrument was important for me to learn that buttonology myself. I practice holds and stuff with it too. Again, not that same seat of the pants feel, but you can practice the procedures. You can practice maybe you know briefing the approach plate in an environment where you can hit pause as opposed to in the aircraft uh, where you got to be on top of it and not fall behind. Uh, Cause at first in my instrument training, I'd fall behind the aircraft a little bit. That was good training for me to get up to speed 
so that I wasn't falling behind the aircraft when I was doing my actual flying. Yeah, it was definitely helpful for me too when I was doing my instrument and even my double eye, um, learning how to do approaches, holds especially. Those are so hard to visualize when you really have no idea what you're doing. Approaches is easier. It's like, I'm going from you know one point high up and I'm going to ground. Okay, I can get there. But as far as holds go, especially like unpublished holds and stuff, those are really tough. And like Trevor said with the G1000, oh my gosh, how overwhelming is that system if you've never used anything like it? Right. I was fortunate enough to start on a, a Garmin G500 with a 650 uh, accompaniment. But even then, like I didn't know a whole lot about that system. And when I switched over to the G1000, it was a totally different world. So things like that, like definitely if you can get access to like a Redbird simulator with that G1000 panel, it's not quite the same. Not everything's the same just because they're not Garmin. They can't quite copy it, but they get pretty close. And especially just like messing around with buttons while you're doing something else like flying the plane, definitely really, really helpful. And with things like engine failures, system failures, there are some things that you just can't really practice in the aircraft as much, especially if you do have those G1000 instruments, because you can't pull the circuit breakers. They, Garmin doesn't like that. Um, the manufacturer doesn't like that either. So definitely if you can get into a simulator for 20 hours or 10 hours, depending on the simulator type, I say do it and do it even more. I did it a lot more than was required just because it was good practice for me. I could slow it down. Yes, I could pause. Um, you know, I could take my time. It's like, read the approach plate. Okay, what am I doing? Okay, here we go. I can unpause, continue on. When I have things like engine failures to deal with or missing instruments in IMC, things like that, definitely good to have. But yeah, for primary training, especially if people who have like experience with Microsoft Flight Simulator and stuff and really um, are really into that, they tend to fixate a lot on instruments and not really have that feel of the aircraft just because that's not what the simulator gives you. And like, for me, I didn't touch a simulator until I was well into my primary training. And when I got on it, I was like, whoa, whoa, I can't feel anything. This is weird. I can't do this. And I ended up not being able to do very well just because I didn't have that missing element. But if you don't know that element is missing, it can really mess you up when you get into the aircraft. So yeah, there's a lot of positive ways that you can use a simulator. Um, some things just to be cautious of as far as developing bad habits and always work through some of those things with your flight instructor as well to get the best guidance on how to go about that, especially when you're in a training environment. So now is the part of the show that I'm dreading a little bit because we decided that I'm going to be on the hook for trivia this time. I've been asking all these questions and trying to stump people. And now I'm afraid I'm going to have to try to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to look like a fool. Fair is fair. I mean, that's <laughs> that's true, but... Hey, you made me look like a fool. Now I'm about to make you look like a fool. That was only the gay grill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it really? Yeah, the rest you did on your own. <laughs> oh, thanks. Wah, wah, I walked into that one. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to stump you with some aviation trivia. Let's see if you're a real pilot. I mean, I am a real pilot. I have a certificate <laughs> and everything, but I'll answer your questions. Okay. All right. All right. Or not. So, all right. So the first free flight of a hot air balloon was in 1783. <laughs> Do you know what city it was in? Mr. Balloon Expert. I'm not a balloon expert. I saw <laughs> one article on Facebook this week about a guy trying to do a flight. And now you're going to stump me with balloon questions. <laughs> Cincinnati, Ohio. It's in Paris, France. I don't know. Clearly, I know I, you're guessing. Good that would have been though. my guess is Paris because I knew it was France because it's oh, all really? that blue, blue and whatever weird-looking balloon. I'm not up to speed on my balloon history. I'll own that. All right, all right. How about fixed wing? Fixed wing history. So we know it's Charles Lindbergh. You know, you, he was famous for crossing. The, uh, the ocean. Louis. Oh, got it. What <laughs> <laughs> was he also the first person to be? Oh, man. Oh, this is a good one. I know the answer to this one. You do? I think so. Do you want to text it to me real quick and then I'll tell her <laughs> and it'll act like I know it? Uh, I well, don't know. <laughs> no, no, maybe I'm questioning. Maybe, maybe it's Jimmy Doolittle I'm thinking. This is not aviation related. I figured it wasn't. 
So mm-hmm. that shouldn't count as a question towards aviation trivia. He is an aviation <laughs> person. He's an aviator. He's an aviator. I don't know. He was the first Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Nineteen twenty-seven. He was. Really? He good, was. For him. good for right? him. Right? Yeah, good yeah. for him. Got a good one for you. Who invented the rocket? Was it A, the Chinese, B, the Japanese, or C, the Russians? The option that I wanted you didn't list. I wanted to say Germans, but that's not right. How many options again? Russians, Japanese, or Chinese? Let's go Russians. Uh, really? Chinese. Chinese. That was my second they, guess. They developed right. gunpowder. Oh, yeah, that's true. Didn't think about that. Now, who is the first American to invent a jet engine? You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> some guy. <laughs> he was some guy in the military. He was not even it's... an officer or anything. He just, like, had a plan. He's like, hey, look, this might work. I don't remember his name. <laughs> well, how can you ask me a question if you don't know what the answer is? <laughs> I can is? ask you whatever I want. Technically. We're just so I could have just made something up, and you couldn't have confirmed if I was right or wrong. This is true. I want to actually know because I can't remember his name. But yeah. And then everybody was like, pish posh. Radials are the best. And then, <laughs> yeah. Then the war happened and then they're like, hey. Hey, remember that one time you said that thing about the jet engine? <laughs> Can we revisit that? Especially because like the Germans are doing it. So how about an easy one? Okay, I'll take an easy one. It was the first woman pilot to cross the Atlantic solo. Is it? Amelia Earhart. It was. Yes, I got one. Good job. Yay. I got a pity clap and everything. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Anytime. So, Jim, I hear Century College is uh, having some aviation classes. That... <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, now that uh, Century College has some aviation history classes that I've enrolled you in, let's go to Maddie to see what we have in store for next episode. <laughs> Well, guys, I know I'm really excited for next episode because we are going to have a ladies in aviation roundtable discussion. We have a few ladies from the Midwest who are in the aviation industry, and we're going to come together, talk a little bit about uh, some of the barriers that either they've faced or that we in general as uh, ladies experience in the aviation industry, uh, a little bit about our accomplishments and what it looks like to be a female in aviation. So I'm really excited for that discussion and more on the next episode. So we are working on some content and some guests for future episodes. So stay tuned for that. Uh, We've got some representatives from some aviation companies that you're going to be familiar with. I don't want to spoil too much on that, as well as some folks that have had aviation mishaps that I will talk about their emergency experiences. So stay tuned for that in coming episodes. We're excited to bring that content to you. And as always, if you've got any suggestions or ideas that you'd like to bring to us or want to shoot us a comment, you can reach us on any of our social media platforms or as always, email us at flyingmidwestpodcasts at gmail.com. Subscribe, hit the bell. See ya. See ya. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. So long. And as with our last episode, I hereby solidify a new tradition, us making fun of ourselves, the gag reel. Volume three. It takes a little bit to get into this, doesn't it? It, A little bit. (laughs) I've been chatting instead of, we've been avoiding what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been having too much fun. (laughs) It's work time. So That's great news, which... Brings us to our news segment. Dorothy's <laughs> <laughs> from a flight engineer. <laughs> that was so stupid. There you go. So on to bigger and more important news. 5G. I don't know. I just see Maddie just sitting What is that face you're making? <laughs> Try not to like bust out laughing. And more important news. <laughs> EA. There's too many. <laughs> there's too many uh, vowels too close together in EAA that I mess it up. I'm gonna stop talking now. I liked what you said. That was very informative. It would be very strange. Um, I serviced B-52s before. Um, 
I dumped their labs, so it's not very gratifying. <laughs> now you said mark your calendars for your anniversary. But it's important to know the date if you want to mark your calendar. <laughs> From a high school junior to... <laughs> I almost said dead. All right, let's 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 redo that. All right. <laughs> <coughs> that was terrible timing. <laughs> I did not expect uh, that. Speaking of dead, <laughs> Maddie almost killed me. <coughs> I have a bunch of sectionals. If you guys want to donate, please do. Paper ones, not digital ones. I don't know about those. Um, yeah, I was, you said sectional, and I should have, because this is an aviation podcast, picked up sectional and not thought couch. This stupid might be permanent. <laughs> <laughs> Who let me talk first? You just started talking. <laughs> and no one stopped me. Yourself. No one stopped me. We wanted to see where you're going to go with this. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> How now, brown cow? I was just going to say, are we ready for some aviation trivia? There's so much gold in this, oh, Maddie. Yeah. You have no idea the gold that you're giving me for the gag reel. No. It's going to be four minutes of Maddie. <laughs> Let's solidify this tradition. Here's more of Maddie talking about AOPA legal. <laughs> <laughs> AOPA legal? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>